1: I'm Patience Adamu.
0: And I'm Curtis Vermont. And this is The Drip, a podcast about political decision-making during a racial revolution.
1: Stick around as we analyze Canadian news and Black issues on a weekly basis.
0: And if you like what you hear, if you think we've got the sauce, subscribe.
1: On this week's episode, we discuss some of the top headlines from the week of May 23rd, including...
0: All Ontarians who want it can be vaccinated by the end of August, pending supply. The remains of 215 children being found at the largest residential school in Canada. Canadian banking fees going up, despite profits increasing over 100% during a pandemic.
1: A black Ryerson student gets accused of stealing her own car. (laughs) Reverse racism claims pick up speed. Here we go. Germany starts dishing out reparations to Namibians. Okay. And plenty more.
0: To kick off our politics segment, so Premier Ford announced all Ontarians who want it will be fully vaccinated by end of August. Second dose appointments open for those 80 plus starting Monday drop to those 70 plus on June 14th, then will be given based on when we received our first shot. And in many cases, People could get their second shot as quickly as four weeks apart, fam. As of Friday, Ontario hit its target of vaccinating 65% of all adults and 15% of youth aged 12 to 17 have gotten the first dose as well. Of course, the ability, as I've mentioned before, to get our shots, it really does depend on supply. And we gave you some information on that last week. There really hasn't been much change on uh, the confirmations of orders for the different vaccines. Mm-hmm. So, y'all want a little breakdown of what to expect? Of course you do. So, I'll I'll, I'll go ahead and hand that over. So, for those who received their first dose between March 8th and April 18th, they can start booking their second dose in the week of June 28th, depending on supply. Appointments will also open up in that period to folks with the highest health risks and special education workers. Next, second dose bookings will open for those who got their first jab between April 19th and May 9th, and to those 50 plus and with high-risk health conditions. On the week of August 2nd, Ontarians who receive their first shot between May 10th and May 30th, and those who can't work from home and who have at-risk health conditions can start booking their second shot. And finally, the rest of Ontario who received their first dose on May 31 and onwards, including those between the ages of 12 and 25, can start booking their second shot in the week of August 9th. So for more information, of course, please do check our show feed. Fam, I am ready. (laughs) (laughs) At the same time, this was also the week that Doug Ford gave medical experts, children's hospitals, and health organizations a whole last day Mm -hmm. to advise him on reopening schools before the end of the school year, continuing to show the disarray that this government is in. We know that the science table is recommending that public health regions have the authority to open up based on their regional or local needs. So it's likely the premier will move ahead with that, right? But according to Ford, only 41% of teachers and education workers have gotten their first dose compared to about 62% of the adult population. So patients, where are you on reopening schools? I mean, do you think that schools should be open for like the last month? And I think Doug Ford mentioned that uh, if we were to open, there was a poss- that we basically would see an increase of 2,000 to 4,000 cases, but it'd be completely controlled. The science table said that too. Or should we just stay closed, make a solid plan for September and reopen then, especially since we should all be vaccinated by then? What do you think?
1: I think we should open up schools. I think that mm-hmm. it's been really tough for parents to manage all of this and- mm-hmm. Uh, Like summer is still a thing, right? Like, it's not like we're, we're, we're going to, you know, open up a little bit earlier to to provide some relief for parents. So I think, I think parents would want schools to open up a little bit so that kids can get that social interaction that they've been missing out on. And so that they can get a little bit of a break before um, real, like the real summer uh, comes and happens. And, and it will be hopefully a better summer than than what we had last year in terms of just things being being open, parks being open, basketball courts, all things of that nature. What do mm-hmm. you think?
0: Yeah, no, I, I, you know what, I think I agree. Um, I, yeah, I think it was last week we were discussing, you know, and I shared that Dr. Um, Sharkawi, he, he was basically saying, he's a parent too, saying it's probably not worth it to reopen schools for the last few weeks, but to have a sound plan for September. But that was before all this good news, right? I, well, not really, actually. It was kind of in the midst of it. Mm. But I, I really have been taking the point that parents need a break. That's what it all comes down to. Yeah. And I can understand how like important that is. So maybe we should reopen schools.
1: And I wonder if, if, if we can just go on a little bit of a tangent. I wonder... Um... You know, school is kind of like free daycare, right? Mm -hmm. For a lot of parents. I wonder if there will be any additional programming, funding, something available for parents who can't afford to send their kids to like a summer camp or Mm. any kind of programming or activity that that would, because it would be a good kind of trade off for, Mm -hmm. um, not opening schools for, for June, but if not, like if we're expecting parents to kind of manage on their own, uh, for June, July and August. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a tough call.
0: I hear you. I hear you. And uh, you know, maybe I'll, I'll do some, uh, some searching to, to update our listeners on, on what, uh, investments may be coming down the pipeline. In terms of what you just mentioned, I I, I won't hold my breath on it, though, mm-hmm. considering what kind of government we're dealing with. Right. Um, I, I mean, I can definitely see education alone, if not many other issues, becoming a major issue uh, in terms of funding for schools, funding for uh, reducing class sizes, which has always been a problem. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this, this Doug Ford government has literally reversed the progress we've been making. Um, and refuses to make the investments necessary today, including on ventilation. We know that both, you know, the opposition NDP and the liberals, probably the Greens too, they would all, no, actually, yes, I I shouldn't say probably. The Greens definitely would invest more in reducing class sizes and proper ventilation. So it'll be an election issue. We'll we'll see how how it lands. Jumping to our next story. In foreign policy news. PM Trudeau is committing $25 million in aid to the Palestinian people affected by the recent 11 day conflict between Israel and Palestine. The money will flow directly to organizations that have a history of helping vulnerable Palestinians cope with recent conflicts, like the World Health Organization, uh, World Food Program, and other UN bodies in Palestine, as opposed to Hamas, which is the governing body there but is known as a terrorist entity here in Canada and most Western states. The aid includes $10 million for urgent food assistance, shelter, water, sanitation, and hygiene, and psychosocial support for children, and another $10 million for humanitarian and rebuilding efforts like vital medical infrastructure. You'll remember that the only COVID testing facility in Gaza was destroyed by the Israeli Defense Force in the carnage. Mm. The final $5 million will be spent to, quote, advance the goal of a comprehensive, just and lasting peace between the Palestinians and the Israelis, end quote. And I actually, I was like, what, what does that even mean? Right. So I, I did some research and basically what the minister, Minister uh, Karina Gould said is it's providing money so that groups on the ground that are actually hosting dialogue can do that in respectful ways and, and, and actually reach conclusions. And I, I actually know what that looks like because I've seen numerous videos on social media. Uh, literally it's a, it's a, it's all, it's usually men, unfortunately, always, but, uh, like it's, it's, it's like five Israelis on one hand, five Palestinians on the other side, I should say rather, and they're sitting in very close quarters. I mean, knees touching and stuff. So it's, it's meant to be, and it gets heated, but it's meant to allow for, you know, the, hopefully, in these conversations, rational minds to kind of meet somewhere in the middle and even if you don't respect or even rather if you, even if you don't agree with one another, you walk away respecting one another and that you know there's there's an element that obviously makes sense to that because even if you have enemies it's good to talk with those enemies because we know that research shows that if you know somebody you're less willing to do bad things to them yeah <laughs> right so that's that's basically what it's what it's meant to do. International Development Minister Karina Gould said the aid will provide timely humanitarian assistance to help people in Gaza recover from the damage caused by the recent conflict. This follows a carefully worded response from Foreign Minister Mark Garneau, which tried to highlight the intricacies of the situation, including the reason why Hamas terrorists might feel their only resort is to volley thousands of rockets into the Israeli state in the first place. Here's an excerpt from his statement. Quote, the indiscriminate barrage of rocket attacks fired by Hamas into populated areas of Israel is absolutely unacceptable and must cease immediately. Canada supports Israel's right to assure its own security. At the same time, here's what he also said. Quote, Canada is deeply disturbed by the completely unacceptable violence in Jerusalem, including in and around Al-Aqsa. These events are especially upsetting during the holy month of Ramadan. Places of worship are for people to gather for peaceful reflection and should never be sites of violence. It is crucial to respect the sanctity and safety of holy sites. Violence in and around Temple Mount must stop. He also said, Canada remains gravely concerned by the continued expansion of settlements and by the demolitions and evictions, including the ongoing cases in Sheikh Jarrah and Silwan. These actions impact families and livelihoods and do not serve peace or international law. Unilateral actions that pre- prejudge the outcome of direct negotiations and further jeopardize the prospects for a two-state solution must be avoided. End quote. So you can kind of see what the government's trying to do. Alas, at least 230 Palestinians were killed, uh, including 65 children and 39 women, uh, with 1,710 people wounded, according to the Gaza Health Ministry Uh, In Israel, 12 people were killed. And this overall follows what the Trudeau government did back in December, which was commit $90 million over three years to respond to increasing needs of vulnerable Palestinian refugees, based on a UN report estimating 1.57 million out of 2 million, three quarters of the population, being in need of humanitarian aid. Wow. So taking a look at the opposition reaction, the NDP uh, supported a ceasefire and uh, obviously want to see talks for lasting peace, like all parties, essentially. They're also calling on the feds to stop selling arms to Israel. Hmm. That proposal was welcomed by Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East, an advocacy group that urged the Bloc Québécois and the Green Party to follow suit. Uh, the Bloc and the Greens have called for a ceasefire, but have not commented on the NDP proposal. By the way, according to the latest stats from Parliament, Canada exported $13.7 million in military goods and tech to Israel in 2019. We do not yet have the numbers for 2020. Uh, just to be clear, though, that's a fraction of... Of the total of almost $3.8 billion in exports that year. It includes military goods and in categories, including electronic equipment and military spacecraft, uh, aircraft, drones, and re- related gear, explosives like bombs, torpedoes, rockets, and missiles, and guns, rifles to be exact. We can definitely do without that $14 million. So maybe we should be putting some pressure on the government to cut it. Um, and, you know, it's for context. In the heat of the conflict, the Biden administration was under heavy, heavy fire because the very weapons being used in the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict were sold to Israel. Now, here's the thing. Was it by the Biden administration or by Trump?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm, it actually, I think it was by Biden. Mm. Right. So it's it's likely that we're probably playing a role there, too. So, uh, yeah, we should probably probably be putting some pressure on the government. Uh, As for the conservative response, conservative foreign affairs critic Michael Chong said his party has been clear that Israel is one of Canada's closest allies and the conservatives support, quote, Israel's right to defend itself. Dialogue and peaceful negotiation are the only path towards a settlement between Israelis and Palestinians and an eventual two-state solution. They also urge calm and sincerely hope that hostilities cease. Or that was that was uh, that was given during the conflict itself. For the record, Israel is now under investigation by the UN for war crimes against Palestinians. Thoughts on this, Patience?
1: I have a I have a question actually. So when we're when we're talking about the thirteen point seven million in exports to Israel, that's not. Is is that the the government like is that DND the, the Department of National Defense that's exporting them or are the, are these private companies that produce military goods and technology?
0: Uh, I mean, so if you're asking if we produce private goods, we absolutely do it. It could be both.
1: Yeah, just just in terms of whether or not Trudeau would have the ability to unilaterally cut that off, or if it would involve more of a no, no, he does. Does, it's,
0: right? it's it's literally the the prime minister's power alone, yeah. um, or if not the prime minister, the defense minister. But li- like literally, it's it's literally their power. Yeah. He doesn't have to consult anybody. He can do what he wants.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, okay. So and and this was a, a similar issue with uh, Saudi Arabia, I believe. Hmm. I believe it was Saudi Arabia. Forgive me to for our listeners if I'm saying the wrong country, but they were obviously committing war crimes against their population. Germany, which is a major arms player as well, mm-hmm. of uh, In fact, they're far bigger in arms player than yeah, Canada. They, are. they they cut Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's
1: that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up.
0: military contracts uh to that country and and we if i'm not mistaken we still haven't wow and if and if we have it took us a really long time and i mean i mean these conversations were going back to 2015 i think years so
1: yeah it's funny you don't think about canada as like an arms dealer you know like but you you totally think about um germany as kind of this like military goods producer like mm-hmm. as i do but you, you never think about canada you know as I insisting mean, I, on exporting this kind of technology
0: yeah yeah i i you know because of my my background in the connect program my my you know my infatuation with the military as well because of that you know i know about this kind of stuff yeah. but like we we are for example we we, we create what's called the the lav three it's a it's a major um troop carrier that most Western countries use. Hmm. That's our technology. We have our own rifles. We don't use American technology. We have our own.
1: Interesting.
0: Jumping to our next story. And this one is, um, you know, it's heavy. This was the week the de Tseqwepemek first nation in BC announced that after decades of painstaking work, new technology had located the remains of 215 children on the grounds of what was Canada's largest residential school, becoming perhaps Canada's clearest evidence of the genocide it committed against the First Peoples of this land. As The Globe reports, quote, Christian churches and the federal government launched the boarding schools in the 1880s and kept them going for more than a century, seeking to convert and assimilate Indigenous children who suffered widespread physical and sexual abuse at these institutions. The thousands died in them, end quote. Indeed, some of those remains were found using new ground radar technology, and the findings were released quickly to the nation, surrounding communities, and broader public late in the week. More information about the technology and work is expected when the full report is released in June. The institution where the remains were found opened in 1890 as the Kamloops Industrial School, as the Kamloops Indian Residential School. Get this, a newspaper story about the school as it became established in the 1890s praised the, quote, zeal of the principal and Roman Catholic sisters running it. The article espoused, quote, the benefits derived from the proper education of the Indian children now growing up to be a reproach to the white population, end quote who could be, quote, made useful members of society and capable of getting an honest and honorable livelihood for themselves and those depending on them, end quote. See, that's sickening because in addition to being forcibly removed from their families and communities, many children in residential schools faced brutal physical, emotional, and sexual abuse, as I've already pointed out, were deprived of proper nutrition and suffered what the federal government's Truth and Reconciliation Commission on the legacy of the schools found to be, quote, very high rates of death, particularly during times of epidemic or disease. Hail Mary, full of grace. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission's Missing Children Project has been working diligently to create a register of children who were killed at residential schools. So far, they've documented more than 4,100 And uh, these 215 will be added to that list. So what was the response like? News of the discoveries had a profound effect in the community and beyond. I know I felt sadness upon hearing the news. Chief Roseanne Casimir of the Ticumlips Ticumlips said in the, said, quote, in the last couple of days, I've had elders and community members reach out and express the depths of their sorrow or sadness and, and how it's triggering them. But at the same token, They're glad that it's coming forth because it's a reality and it's something that we do not want to have under the carpet in any shape or form. We want to heal with our people, end quote. And look, I'm going to take some time to actually hear directly from Indigenous people, so I hope you'll indulge with me. Chief Judy Wilson of the nearby Nescanlith Indian Band and Secretary-Treasurer of the uh, Union of BC Indian Chiefs, described news of the discovery of the children's remains at the school site as, quote, a blow to your entire mind, body, and spirit, end quote. In a statement from Manitoba, Southern Chiefs Organization Grand Chief Jerry Daniels said, the discovery is further evidence of the cruelty and genocide imposed on First Nations, and filled him with rage and grief. I totally understand. Quote, today we are all reliving one of the darkest periods in our collective history, I join all our relatives in grieving the loss of these young souls and all lives that were lost to the Indian residential school system. End quote. Former Truth and Reconciliation Commissioner Mary Wilson said the discovery of the grave sites is the quote, terrible, gut wrenching validation end quote, of what so many survivors told the Commission about children they knew who disappeared from school and those who they heard had died. And finally, Assembly of First Nations National Chief Perry Bellegarde said, while it is not new to find graves at former residential schools in Canada, quote, it's always crushing to have that chapter's wounds exposed. And what he also said was, you can bet your bottom dollar there are going to be more mass graves like these found all across the country, because, of course, the system was all across the country, not just in B.C. Jumping to political reaction. There was a moment of silence in the House of Commons on Friday. B.C. Premier John Horgan said he was, quote, horrified and heartbroken, end quote, by the news, and added that this is a tragedy of unimaginable unimaginable proportions and a stark example of the violence the Canadian residential school system inflicted upon Indigenous peoples and how the consequences of these atrocities continue to this day the Horgan government set up a 24-hour crisis line for those affected by residential schools in response. Uh, In a statement on Friday, the Prime Minister said the news breaks his heart and serves as, quote, a painful reminder of that dark and shameful chapter of our country's history, end quote. NDP leader Digmeet Singh expressed his heartfelt condolences in an Instagram post, um, calling on us to never forget what our country did while appreciating that the injustices continue to this day. Um, I'm personally definitely hoping that this contributes to healing to all it applies to. And I know that it actually led to all MPs fast tracking and passing a bill to create a national holiday for truth and reconciliation the very next day. Um, so now that bill is in the Senate, I believe it's C5. Um, and if all goes well, that holiday for government workers will be September 30th. Any last words on this patience?
1: Yeah, I think... So last year at my workplace, we we acknowledged Orange Shirt Day, which is the, the day that we recognize um, the intergenerational traumas caused by the residential school system on September 30th. So it's great that they're wanting to make September 30th a national holiday. Great. Mm-hmm. What I'm what I'm missing from the story here is some accountability. Mm. And I know that it was the government, so it's maybe hard for the government to hold itself accountable, but through my work, through my research, there continues to be this really huge gaping hole in, in terms of, of Canada acknowledging what it has done. Mm-hmm. So just like Jagmeet said, like we need to never forget what our country did, mm-hmm. what the Catholic Church was empowered to do in this country. And I don't see any... I don't see that that happening. I don't see it showing up substantially on the citizenship test. I don't see it showing up when we talk about Canada's history, Um, when we're trying to encourage immigrants to come here. I don't see it showing up in the elementary school history curriculums. Like, this is... We... we 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 need to not forget this. We need to continue to be counting the the bodies of, of of the the people who were taken from from us, and this is not enough.
0: I think what complicates some of what you're saying is the uh, federal provincial jurisdiction. I mean, a lot of this would have to do with education, and that's that's a provincial responsibility. Um, and I know that people will say, well, you know. Trudeau should just step up to the plate and take the heat but like here in Canada that division of responsibility that division of powers is a really serious thing especially for conservative premiers which we currently have a majority of in this country so um, it's not something that can be easily brought about but obviously um, it's something that you would want the federal government to take a lead on right you really would
1: I hear you uh also i noticed that in terms of the quotes that you got or the comments that you got that you didn't get one from the conservatives
0: and you know what i uh i was gonna leave it to the listeners to figure that out i, ha- I literally was thinking, should i mention the fact that the conservatives didn't say a damn thing
1: Idiot, ting, that.
0: jumping to the canadian economy Well, 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 what do we have here? Bank fees are going up during a pandemic year, and Canadians ain't having it. As we're sure many of you already know, banking fees are going up across the board for most customers, except for those at RBC, who already endured a fee increase last year. Indeed, uh, customers at TD, CIBC, BMO, and Scotiabank were so cheesed that they contacted CBC's GoPublic in droves to make it make sense. Since last time they checked, we were still in a pandemic where millions of people had been on government assistance to get them through the waves. And what's worse? Banks have been profiting, literally swimming in billions more dollars since last year. So how do the banks earn their money anyway? The banks say part of the reason they're swimming in profits is because they're able to draw back some of the money they set aside to cover loans they worried might go bad during the pandemic, known as loan loss provisions. The banks put away billions of dollars worth of cash on their balance sheets in case they had to write off defaulted loans because of the pandemic. But government data shows that in the last fiscal year, just over 2,500 Canadian companies went insolvent, down 30% from just over 3,500 that did so the year before, when there was no pandemic. It's a similar story for consumer insolvencies, down by 37% compared to before the pandemic. If we take a look at specific examples, RBC had loan loss provisions of $2.1 billion this time last year. They're now down to just $260 million. TD had $3.2 billion worth of provisions a year ago. This quarter, that figure actually became a net positive with a recovery of $377 million. At CIBC, loan loss provisions plunged by 98% from $1.4 billion last year to just $32 million now. So, what role do bank fees play in the profits? Well, if you use BMO as an example, their bank fees alone were about $5 million more this year than last, $1.598 billion in Q1 of 2020 versus $1.643 billion now. Here's a snapshot of how much the banks raked in last year. Are you ready? Yeah, man. <laughs> like I pointed out before, every single one of the banks have made more money this quarter than they did Q1 of 2020. Uh TD Bank in 2020 they made 2.98, basically just under 3 billion. Uh Q1 of this year they made 3.2, just under 3.3 billion. BMO they made 1.5 just under 2 billion last year. This year just over 2 billion. RBC 3.5 billion last year. This year, 3.8. Scotiabank, 2.32 last year. This year, 2.39, almost 3 billion. NCIBC, 1.21 last year. This year, 1.625. Everybody's everybody's eating.
1: Rolling the in the dough.
0: Fam. Like everybody but Canadian. So uh reflecting <laughs> on the issue. Democracy Watch co-founder Duff Conacher said, quote, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said a year ago that the banks should be doing more to help Canadians, and gouging them is not helping them. It's about time he and the finance minister stepped in, end quote. Uh, jumping to reaction. Jagmeet gave Justin a grilling in the house. and Justin gave a canned answer that honestly didn't mean shit. People like Hilliard Macbeth, a 40-year veteran of the personal finance industry, An author of When the Bubble Bursts points out that although we're clearly annoyed right now, we're not annoyed enough since many of us have options to switch to credit unions or other low-fee alternatives, but we don't. He also says, quote, the only way that Canadians would lose their love affair with the banks right now is if the banks started to foreclose on homes... And also to put people in bankruptcy over their credit cards and their HELOCs and all that stuff. I, I totally agree with that. Um, I actually had a really bad experience with RBC years ago. And that from that point, I was like, yo, banks. I know that political engagement group Lead Now is fundraising thousands of dollars right now to get an op-ed in the PM and Deputy Prime Minister's face through the Hill Times. And I know they've produced an open letter signed by over 10,000 Canadians calling on the government to force our banks to be even a bit, just a little bit ethical, just a little bit. If you support that motive, the link to lend your support to that movement is in our show feed. So, any thoughts you'd like to share on this, Patience? Do you think this push will be successful?
1: Well, I think it has to be successful. While the government is pouring money to try to keep people eating and living and, and being okay in the midst of, of what is essentially a recession. I, I can't, I can't understand how they would not support pressuring banks to chill out with the profits. Is it like, isn't this an obvious thing for them to do?
0: Definitely. And this is one of those things where like, for example, when, when, you know, I, again, I said, uh, Sing grilled, uh, the prime minister in the house and, and, Basically, Justin's saying the right stuff, but like, it's not about saying the right stuff. It's about laws. You, you have to put laws in place where banks to do what they want. And just like I mentioned before, in another situation, they have all the power. Trudeau has all the power to make changes. Hey everyone, we split this episode in two since we had enough to talk about. This half of the episode consisted of domestic, political, and economic news only. The second half will consist of our Blackity Black Black segment, as well as world news. We hope you enjoy, and as always, thanks for listening.